Have you guys ever been suckered into a sale? I remember going to an auto show one time and listening to a pitch for this car wash product. And it was back when I had just begun driving, you know, because I knew that I, I was going to be seen in my car and I wanted to look at my beautiful car. And so I wanted the thing to be clean. And so I sat there listening to this pitch for this car wash product. And just listening to these guys for five minutes, I found myself reaching into my pocket, pulling out my wallet, and wanting to fork over 20 bucks for this car wash product. And then my other friend, he did the same thing. And after going home, excited that this thing was going to, thinking that this thing was going to work, you know, we went home and tried it, and frankly, it just didn't work. And we knew at that moment that we were suckered into a sale, into a deal, supposedly. Um, So looking back, we got suckered specifically by their sales tricks that work particularly with emotions. A good salesman will always make you feel like you need the product in your life in order for your life to be better, in order for your life to be whole and full, and you need to buy it now. So let me just give you some tips here. If if you're ever in sales, uh, this is what they teach you. Always offer it at a discount. MSRP might say $300, right? Manufactured suggested retail price. But we'll give it to you for $199.99, right? Always offered at a discount. Uh, The second thing they tell you is always make people feel like they're getting a deal. If you call now, right now, we'll throw in a second one for free. Third, make people feel the pressure to act now. The first 25 people who call right now will receive receive this deal, the second one for free, and we'll throw in a third one for free. Number four, tell people how their lives will change with it. Get this, and your life will be so much better, and you'll never have to wash your car again. Suckered. This is, I imagine, where is where some Christians uh, find themselves being suckered with things that are outside of God's will, offering what seems to be a fuller life than the one that they have in Jesus Christ. And it's where the Christians in a city called Colossi, or some people call it Coloss, or some people call it Colossi, I'll just refer to it as Coloss. It's where it's the situation that the Christians in Coloss found themselves. And some people in their very own community were telling them that they were to have a better life than the one they had in Christ if they would just add to what they had already heard, believed, and received. If they would only add to the gospel, then they would have a full life. Well, today we begin a new series in the New Testament book of Colossians. You can go ahead and turn with me there. And the series title is just called Alive in Christ. And in this letter, we have Paul the Apostle's response to that church who is on the verge, so to speak, of sticking their hands in their pockets and handing over their credit card information to people who are wanting to manipulate, wanting to change things, wanting to add things, telling others that they don't have the full life in Christ that is promised in God's word alone. So in this series, we're reminded that we as Christians are indeed alive in Christ. And then Paul helps us in the letter of Colossians know what this new life looks like. So this morning we see that those who are alive in Christ are to live a life of thanks. 
Those who are alive in Christ are to live a life of thanks. Look at Colossians 1, 1 to 8. This is what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Coloss, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is the fellow minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Well, before we get into living a life of thanks, it's important to know a little bit of background about the letter as we're going to spend the next 12 weeks or so looking at it. And we can actually learn a good deal about the letter and the situation uh, or the situation that the letter was written in from the letter itself. So look there in verse 1. There we know that Paul was the author. Paul the apostle charged with laying the foundation of the church just like all the other apostles were. And we know that Timothy, Paul's disciple, is named there too. Possibly because Paul was speaking the contents of the letter and Timothy would write them down. And then at the very end, we see there, if you want to turn there to the last, the last chapter, verse 18, of the, basically the last verse of the book. It says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So there at the very end, maybe Paul picks up the letter himself and writes it, uh, writes his own signature, writes this final salutations, and then encourages them to remember his imprisonment. Well, that's another thing we learned there. It was written by Paul, but also written during some sort of imprisonment there. So that's interesting because we're supposed to, as Christians, live a new life of thanks. But how is it that when you're in jail, you live a life of thanks? Well, we're going to look into that a little bit more. When it comes to the Colossian church, now we actually don't know too much about how that church was birthed. Um, but there are good clues in here. So as I mentioned earlier, if you look there in chapter 1 of verse 7, a man named Epaphras is mentioned. And Paul says that uh, in that verse there, that the Colossian folks, those Colossian Christians, heard it, that is the gospel, and understood it through this man named Epaphras. So most likely what had happened is this man named Epaphras traveled east, uh, or sorry, traveled west to Ephesus about 75 miles on a main road, just a straight shot over. He hears the gospel through Paul's ministry. Paul was at Ephesus for three years and was uh, you know, ministering there. And then Epaphras probably returns home and shares the gospel with the people there at Coloss. They are converted. Uh, but the bad thing, as we know, if you just take time to read the letter over the afternoon, it'll take you about 25 minutes, 20 minutes maybe. Uh, there's false teaching there. So not all is well. And there are some people in their own community who are saying, look, if you just add this thing, this lifestyle, if you just pursue the mystical and, you know, worship angels and the superstitious stuff, you just do all these various things, then you have new life in Christ. And so most likely Epaphras goes, is sent by the church back to Paul, who is maybe still in Ephesus and Paul learns about this great new work, how the nations are coming to know Christ. 
because this place was a very international place to some degree. And Paul responds with this very letter, declaring and reminding them of the supremacy of Christ and their new life in him. So if you think Colossians, you want to think of those two things, supremacy of Christ over all things, and then the Christian's new life in him. So let's turn and look specifically at our passage this morning, verses 1 to 8. This is point number one. It's clear that thanks goes to God. Thanks goes to God. The letter begins with uh, a, a greeting and then a thanksgiving. It's a common way for letters during that time to have begun. But Paul, as he's picking up the customs of the day, he Christianizes this greeting in the thanks. So he talks about his apostleship according to God's will. You know, again, he's charged with laying the foundation of the church there. He also speaks of two different blessings, God's grace and then God's peace. Distinctively Christian ideas. So God's grace, God's unmerited favor to sinners there. And then God's peace, as the letter uh, will address, is only had through the cross of Christ. So he blesses them. God's grace and God's peace be with you. And then he turns to 3 to 8 there in this section. And really what drives this section is this word of thanksgiving. So in 3 to 8, it's actually just one Greek sentence driven by we give thanks. We always thank God. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now again, this is a thanksgiving, a typical way to begin a letter. But in no way should we just simply gloss over this really quickly. I mean, God's people, according to Scripture, are to be distinguished by their thankful hearts. We who believe that God created everything and sustains everything and directs everything, thanksgiving to our sovereign God ought to be woven throughout the course of our lifetime, not just at the dinner table, not just at, let's say, something like thanksgiving. Uh, so we see this in scripture. I mean, when God's people uh, see their life and all the happenings that are taking place, uh, here they're attributing everything to the sovereign God alone, the exercise of a sovereign grace. So, for example, we see people in scripture, right, when they're looking at the created world, they see the sun, they see the moon, they see the stars. They thank God for his power, for his provision to them, the rain, the sun, etc. Uh, people in scripture, when they see the beauty in the world. They thank God and bless God who is its source. When people see the mighty works of God in salvation, for example, in the Exodus, they thank and bless God for his sovereign grace, for his rulership, for his deliverance there. So here they're just seeing the stuff of the world. They're seeing the, the very, their own existence and everything is sort of uh, meant to shoot their eyes back up, their souls back up to their sovereign God, his gracious rulership. So when you have a worldview like that, when we are created by God and dependent upon God. When we realize that we find our breath from God. And this God even keeps our breath there. Our lives are to be lived in great thanksgiving. So let me ask you guys. Are you thankful? If you are a child here in this service. So children, I'm speaking to you. Would your parents call you a thankful child? Maybe for all of the different blessings that they give you. You know, Christians of all people ought to be a thankful people. We are those who proclaim and claim, we proclaim and claim a free grace. 
underneath the sovereign God. We believe in the gospel that says that it is by his grace that we are saved, right? I mean, we look at our own will, we realize that we have sinned against God, according to scripture. We have rebelled against him and and we even have earned for ourselves just judgment. But then according to God's sovereign mercy and his grace, he chooses to save us sinners all by his grace and his mercy and his love all because of who he is in himself, right? He is a loving God, and so he moves to save. I mean, the definitions of mercy and grace reside all in him. And so freely, out of love, he moves to save, and he initiates this salvation by sending his son to die on the cross. Christ takes on flesh, he lives a perfect life, he bears the wrath that we deserved. So we don't merit our salvation there's nothing in us that God says, wow, that's really beautiful and therefore you ought to be saved and he therefore moves to save. It doesn't work that way. We know in, in the Old Testament, right? Why does God choose Israel? He chooses them not because they are more numerous or more powerful than all the other peoples of the world. He chooses them really so that he would display his glory. We don't work our way to God. But instead, God works his way to us, all because he's loving and gracious. Flip over to 2.13 there. And it's just so clear. The sovereign grace of God. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses. Dead in your trespasses. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. We're going to get to that. That can be confusing to you if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer. But there he's talking about remaining in the sinful flesh, the stuff of the world. We are not cut off. But God says that, look, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Right? When we understand that gospel of sovereign grace, when we understand the gospel rightly, there is only room for us to be thankful and then to rejoice. To praise God that he is a God who saves. I mean, we are really a people. Christians are people A people who sit under the free grace of God alone. So how is your thanksgiving going as you sit under this grace of God? Just think of your prayers of thanksgiving. Is it a rare occasion to find yourself thanking God for something other than your food? And if you know your hearts, you know that even when you do thank God for the food... Your mouths are probably less ready to sing God's praises than they are to eat the very food that he's provided. These are signs that we take God's grace for granted. So our passage today, it helps realign our hearts in in the gratitude that we ought to have. The thankfulness that we ought to have for what alone saves. That's God's sovereign grace. I mean, this right here is a vibrant prayer of thanksgiving. And it was to function, certainly, as as something that realigns their hearts. Paul thanks God for what alone is reliable and true. He sees God's sovereign grace at work as God bears gospel fruit from the gospel root. Point number two, we're going to look here at what he specifically thanks God for. And what we ought to be thanking God for, too. So we looked at the fact that thanks was to go to God. Now we see what he thanks God for. What, what's the content of this vibrant prayer? It's forbearing gospel fruit there in verses 4 to 5. Actually, we'll go ahead and start at 3. 
Verse 3 says, we, ought, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, the logic here is clear. We always thank God, always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. <coughs> The love also, and then also the hope. So here's this like fruit trio. Faith, love, and hope. And this trio sort of, it shows up regularly in Paul's letters. So when he refers here to faith in Christ, in Colossians specifically, he refers like to to their new lives that are lived in Christ. The realm that they have gone from, as later on we see in Colossians, God has rescued us out of darkness and brought us into the domain of Christ. So he looks at their faith and he thanks God for that, for that faith that he sees there. And then he, prays, he thanks God for the love that you have for all the saints. And this refers to Christian love. Uh, he calls them saints, that is the holy ones there. And this love it, it ought to be a distinguishing mark of the Christian too. I mean, God himself is love and God saves out of love. And then now God's love towards the individual is working its way out in the community. And then the reason why they have faith and love, it says, is on account or because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the reality that there is a future hope drives them to faith and love in the present. Uh, So this hope here is is objective reality. It's not a subjective feeling like something that says, uh, I feel like I have hope. The hope here, the word hope, it signifies the thing hoped for. It's like the treasure hoped for. So he can say my hope as in this thing, the thing hoped for. And we know that because it's stored up for them in heaven. Right? It's not in their hearts, although subjective hope is. The objective hope is stored up for them in heaven. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, reading this might seem strange, this kind of prayer. Um, you, know, you, might, you might think he's thankful that people have nearly adopted a moral standard. Like these Christians are nuts. I mean, this reeks of religious tribalism, really. He's so thankful that these people have all decided to follow Jesus. That's actually not what he's thankful for. Okay, so let me be clear here. He's not thanking God that these people have chosen uh, to adopt the same moral standard that Paul has. He's also not thanking God because his camp has more converts than all the Greco-Roman religious camps. No, in thanking God here, Uh, He he thanks God for the Colossian Christian's fruit because he recognizes that God himself is upholding, he's upholding his salvation plan. That's why he thanks God here. He sees that there is only one God and this one God is moving in such a way to uphold his salvation plan and to fulfill it right before his very own eyes, right before Epaphras' eyes, right before all of the Colossian Christian's eyes. He recognized that God himself is the one who's working in the hearts of these people according to his sovereign grace. And that's why his thanks is directed to God as opposed to, you know, let's say some dude scores a touchdown and they just do the, you know, the obligatory shout out to the man upstairs for making the ball fall in my hand and score a touchdown. Um, That's not the kind of thanks he's, he's giving up here. He's saying, that's the God I depend on. Thank you, God, for working out your plan of salvation in all of these people's lives. What he sees here is sovereign grace at work here. This faith, this love, this hope, 
These are the very things that God alone produces in his people. So faith alone, just as Oscar prayed earlier. According to Ephesians 2, it is a gift of God. So your faith is a gift of your sovereign God to you. The love that Christians have for one another is made possible, only possible, because God himself is love. And then Christians, we come to know this very divine love because God is the one who chooses to set his love upon a people. Right? We wouldn't know this divine standard of love had not God revealed himself. And then this Christian's hope. I mean, I mean, who's doing the laying up in heaven for them? The people aren't doing the laying up. It says here that this hope is made possible because God himself not only grants salvation, not only does he win salvation for people, but he also reserves it for them. That's also reflected in 1 Peter. God is said there that God even protects his people for the treasure that he has for them by the faith that God has given them. So again, this is not a courtesy thanks here. This is a this is recognition that this sovereign God has worked in their lives. And he wants them to delight in this. And Paul himself delights in it too. He wants them to remember, look, God is working in your lives in such a way to bring about the fullness of life in Christ. He doesn't want them to steer away from other things, the things that other people are saying. Look, you need to add to yourself, add to your faith in order to live the full life. You know, if anything is going to make us feel like God's grace is not enough, it's going to be our inability to see what God has already done and what God is currently doing. You know where I see sovereign grace taken for granted? Strangely enough, I hear it in our responses when we find out someone has become a Christian, right? So sometimes, I mean, when we hear that someone that we've been evangelizing for years, finally they come to faith, don't you just want to say a little bit, you know, finally? Geez, these people took long enough. She's only been thinking about it for 30 years. It's about time. But if we believe that the Bible says, and it does say, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, if we believe what the Bible says, that the carnal mind cannot, cannot discern spiritual things because those things are spiritual and the carnal mind is carnal. If we believe what the Bible says, that uh, we are in fact dead in our sin, there is no life in us. If we believe what the Bible says, that God alone is the God who gives life. Then we can never actually give a response like that, where God's sovereign grace is taken advantage of. And then we reflect that in our pride, saying, it's about time this person came to faith. They should have been like us and have decided, you know, many years ago. But when we remember that salvation belongs to God alone, we say, thank you, God, for working. Thank you for your sovereign grace and changing hearts through the power of the gospel alone. You know, something that we can do that helps tune our hearts to sing God's praises and his grace is hearing about God's sovereign grace in each other's lives. So you realize that when conversion happens, you realize that it's all God's grace. Uh, so God elects people from before creation, says that very clearly in the book of Ephesians. He, he, so he elects them before, before creation. And then he causes that person to be born because you know he's sovereign over all things and he's bringing up bringing up lies whenever he chooses and then he chooses people to speak the gospel to that person maybe once maybe a thousand times 
Maybe you yourselves know you're on your 999th time. You're almost on your 1,000th time speaking the gospel to this person who just will not hear it. And then maybe through you and the other 100 people that have shared the gospel with them, God is drawing them to himself, the Bible says. The only ones who come to the Father are drawn by Jesus Christ, Jesus himself says in the book of John. And God draws people through the circumstances of life, maybe through sickness, maybe through your own sickness, you know what it's like. Maybe through health. Maybe through a loss of job. A death of a loved one. Maybe some random person invited you to vacation Bible school. Right? I was listening to a testimony of somebody and she just remembers that this white bus would come along in the city and bring people to the church. And there she heard the gospel, or at least, very least, about this Jesus who's king. Right? That's God drawing a person slowly to himself of those whom he has chosen. And then at his appointed time, he chooses, God alone chooses, he takes the words of truth that you've spoken to him, that he's given you, he takes those words of the gospel that you've given them, the prayers and requests that you've lifted up before him, and in an instantaneous moment, turns the lights on, gives them new life. That's wonderful. So as a pastor, I get the opportunity to sit down and hear uh, your testimonies and membership interviews. Um, and then when we bring people into membership, we get to speak the testimonies, although in a very short form, a couple minutes or so. Uh, but, but I love those times, and I pray that you guys would too. I love those times. Because we get to hear the testimonies of how God has worked in each other's lives, sovereignly, all by a sovereign grace. And we as listeners, I mean, how awesome is this? We get the chance to trace out the intricacies of God's working. We get to walk the walk of grace that he himself has brought you through. I was doing the interview of another person. She moved to the country from a different country, uh, didn't know much English. A next door neighbor invited her to come to the church, uh, and eventually she comes to Christ. I mean, this is your guys' testimony. You know, you guys might not even remember your uh, Sunday school teacher's name that was when you were seven years old who pulled you aside and said, look, do you know who this Jesus is and what the gospel is? You might not even know that person's name, but that's God's sovereign grace given to you, arranging things in your life so that he would bring you to know him. So I pray that you all would take up the opportunity to speak uh, your testimonies to one another and have the listeners walk with you, trace out with you, even though you might not realize it, where God's sovereign grace has taken you, this walk of grace, and then rejoice at every single step. Even when your hearts were hard, God was working to soften them. But only talk, don't only talk about God's grace in conversion. You can also talk about God's grace in sanctification or growing you in maturity. And Colossians is very much a book about growing people in maturity. So when you see a spouse or a friend growing in the knowledge of God and acting upon God's truth, when you see them acting more wisely according to scripture or desiring things that they didn't desire before, like the word or prayer or loving others or being kind and patient, you know, you see the, the, the fruit of the spirit blossoming in their lives. That's God's very spirit working in them. The spirit who searches the mind of God and then reveals to you just a little bit what you can handle so that you might be conformed more into the image of his son. Are you good at that? Speaking about God's grace in another person's life, pointing out how you think God is working on your spouse, your friend, your parent, letting them know, and then thanking God how you see that it, God working in their lives. 
If you have a friend or an acquaintance or a loved one, a spouse, a child, a parent, ask them, do I do this profusely? And if their answer is no, then you know you got something to work on. Ask them, do I thank uh, do I do I do I let you know how God's grace, how I think God's grace is working in you, and then do I let you know how I am thanking God for that? If their answer is no, you do not do that profusely. You have something to work on. <clears throat> Pray that we would be a community whose heart is full of gratitude. And remember that in order to do that, it involves people reminding us what we ought to be grateful for. Let's remind each other of the love that God has had towards us as sinners in the gospel then our hearts will be ready to sing God's praises. Puritan Thomas Watson, he said, the deepest springs yield the sweetest water. Hearts deeply aware of God's love yield the sweetest praises. Well, the first thing that Paul, is, Paul prays for is that, is that God is bearing gospel fruit. Praise, praise God. Thank, I thank God for this fruit trio. Faith, love, hope the second thing that paul thanks god for is what is the fact that he had planted the gospel root so we looked at the fruit now he thanks god for the gospel root this is where the fruit comes from it's where the fruit stems from this is in verses five and six speaking about the gospel look there in verse five he says of this hope of this hope you heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So you may have heard of this fruit and root language. You know, it's not just cutesy language. It's biblical language. So here we see that there is fruit growing. Uh, and then if you turn over to 2 verse 6, look over to chapter 2 verse 6. Paul says that Christians are to be rooted and built up in Christ. As they grow to maturity, bearing lots of fruit, rooted and built up in Christ. So here you see that there is this fruit that really stems from the root that is the gospel. This passage is really clear that whatever fruit we are bearing. So if you look over to your next door neighbor and you see fruit being born, we know ultimately that that is because of the word of truth. And God is working in those lives. <coughs> uh, and, and these gospel truths, I mean, right there in the first eight verses of chapter one, Paul tells them. This is what they had heard about, he says. What they heard about. Paul says that the gospel is that which came to you. And stated very clearly is the fact that faith and love stems from a hope which came from the word of truth of the gospel. And verse 6 says, they are saved through the hearing of the gospel and the understanding the grace of God in truth. So he reminds everybody, look, if there's fruit being born, really the reason why that all comes up is because God's sovereign grace, as he upholds his plan of salvation and unfolds it right before their eyes through the power of the gospel. Forget about the philosophies of the day that say, look, you might, you might have a fuller life, except for that, not the one that you have now in Jesus. You might have a fuller one if you just add to what you already have, namely the gospel. But Paul says, look, you focus on the gospel and look at what it's bearing. It's wonderful, beautiful, wonderful fruit. So again, if you're visiting with us today and you're exploring Christianity, Paul is not fighting to protect some sort of cultural outgrowth of truth. As in, 
you know, you Christians came up with your religion, and then the other people, they came up with theirs. In an effort to protect the Christian culture, we therefore need to stick to what we believe. They have their truth, we have ours. Paul is, do, doesn't say Christianity is a cultural outworking, but instead he says it is the truth. <coughs> These things came to you, you heard it through the gospel of the truth. The facts of the gospel are the facts of history. And the Colossian Christians then know it, and the, Coloss- and the Christians today need to hear it again and again and again. You know, today, the fact that the gospel is truth, that the gospel is truth of historical reality, that's something that's readily attacked today. Some people say the gospel is based on falsehood and that people simply made it up. And a certain stripe of atheism goes so far to claim that Jesus never existed. But then the question, I mean, you know, the non-Christian and the Christian can both ask the question, is this intellectually sustainable that Jesus Christ just simply never existed? The answer is no, it is not intellectually sustainable. To say that Jesus never existed is to deny history. Straight out, it's just to simply deny history if you claim that Jesus never existed. Uh, One professor named John Dixon, author, teacher, he teaches at the University of Sydney, and he writes regularly about the the reality, the historical reliability of the Bible. He put out this challenge to this small band of atheists who claimed that Jesus never lived. And he said, he said look, if you're investi- investigating Jesus, there are issues to be investigated. That's certainly clear. And you ought to if you want to maintain intellectual integrity. He says, but the, cl- but the claim that Jesus never lived is ludicrous. And so in one of his brief pieces that he wrote, uh, he gave out a challenge that he had already given before. And this is his challenge. He said, to repeat a challenge I've put out on social media several times before, he said, I will eat a page of my Bible if someone can find me just one, just one full professor of ancient history, of the classics, or the New Testament in an accredited university somewhere in the world, and he notes there are thousands to choose from, who thinks Jesus never lived. I'll eat a page of my Bible. Genesis 1, the page, the first page of the Bible, remains secure in his Bible, along with all the other pages in the Bible. I mean, people may have questions about who this Jesus was and what he said, but to claim that Jesus never lived is simply to deny history. You have to go and rewrite, basically, the, the entire way that we know anything about ancient history if we are to say that Jesus never lived. Because we, there's so much more evidence of the fact that Christ lived than there is for any other ancient document in the world. And so this this stripe of atheism here, um, what they're doing is simply ludicrous. And other atheists, non-Christians, clearly recognize this. Now for those who are willing to concede that Jesus did live, and you wonder whether what we have in the Bible is legit, that's worthy of your investigation. Absolutely. Um, Let me point you to a few resources that will be of help. Uh, a small one, both of these are under 150 pages. One of them is written by a man named Barry Cooper. It's called, Can I Really Trust the Bible? So you can just write that down. Can I Really Trust the Bible? Question mark By a man named Barry Cooper. It's, it's a really helpful reading. Um, probably suitable for anyone from the years of, you know, maybe 14 years up. 
Another one is written by a man named F.F. Bruce. He was a professor at the University of Manchester in England, and he wrote a book called New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? I got both of these books over in the office. You can take a look at them um, and then purchase them or borrow them from the library if you can find it. And uh, hopefully that will be of use to you. So those things here, the New Testament documents are absolutely reliable. The gospel that the Colossians believed in, that they embraced when Epaphras brought it to them, is a historically reliable gospel. It's a gospel in truth. And those people believed it. Which is why over there in, in, uh, turn over to chapter 2, verse 8. He says there, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, he's not saying that the, that the uh, discipline of philosophy today is absolutely useless. He's talking about the philosophies that, they, that the people there in Colossus were uh, speaking. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul's saying, look, I thank God for sovereignly upholding and unfolding his plan of salvation through this gospel. The divine truth that alone will bear great fruit. And that's why he's directing this great thanks directly to God. Jesus lived and Jesus died on the cross. These are historical facts. Why did Jesus live and die on the cross? The Bible says it was to save us from our sins. And to live a life with Jesus, to live a life with God, that is what one must Come to know, understand, and believe. And this Jesus is the one whom you must follow. So if you know that you don't have this life with God, God calls you to simply repent of your sins and believe in the truth. And that is what saves. That's what gives you a full life. Not the empty philosophies of the world. Not through empty deceit. But it's in a life lived of submission to Christ and his word. The gospel is what this church and God said every church is to be about because it is that alone that saves. And this is why we hope the gospel would be in every single sermon you hear on Sundays. It's why we preach God's truth and nothing but the truth is what, what, what Paul preached to Epaphras. It's what Epaphras brought back to the Colossians. And since that truth was being muddied, Paul responds to, to clarify for the Colossian Christians what the faithful Epaphras, that faithful minister of the gospel, he says, look, what he told you is true. Christ is indeed supreme and new life is found in him. So the gospel is the truth that the Colossians had heard, what they understood, what they believed. And through the spread of God's gospel, he was moving to save. What confidence this little band of Colossian believers had as they heard there. Look there in verse 6. Indeed, It says, in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you. Look, you might be hearing other things, he says. But this gospel is what is bearing fruit around the world, just as it does among you. The Colossian Christians would have confidence and assurance in the gospel and God's plan of salvation. This thanksgiving prayer from the big picture standpoint, again, was gratitude to God for upholding and unfolding his sovereign plan of salvation of which those who believe in Christ alone for salvation are part of. For this, for the Christian, as we sit underneath this grace, that's great reason for our hearts to be grateful, to be thankful to him for working 
and working here in our own lives. So the Colossian church, to conclude, had reason to be encouraged. God was bearing fruit, just as he said he would. Just as he said he would in the beginning. Just as he said in Isaiah, the passage that we read earlier. Just as Christ himself said, as he charged the people to go out to the ends of the earth with the gospel, knowing that it would bear fruit. I think it's appropriate for us to take stock of God's grace amongst us, too. I was preparing my end-of-the-year update letter to those praying and supporting us, and I wanted to introduce our supporters to some of you guys. And so I asked a handful of you guys to just write how you're doing spiritually at the church since you've been here. And I just want to read a, a couple of them now. There's actually a number of them. We only have time for probably a couple of them. And if you're visiting with us, um, please be aware that these comments are evidence of God's grace, and they are positive. Please also be aware, too, that I didn't ask them to write something negative. I'm sure they could. So here, I'm not, we're not uh, merely saying how great, or we're not saying how great we are. This is an imperfect church, so we struggle with our own issues and our own sins. But nevertheless, even in the midst of that, one reason why we can be so thankful is because despite of our sin, God continues to work. So listen to these testimonies here. And keep in mind here, uh, this is all by the grace of God. All of it by the grace of God. Jennifer Ng, she writes, I love that we gather together as one body to challenge and point one another to pursue Christ-likeness on a daily basis. And the very fact that that's possible means that someone is speaking this gospel truth to Jen, or maybe Jen's observing these things on a daily basis. I mean, how encouraging is that? Through the preaching of the word, the Lord has put a deep burden on my heart to rediscover what it means to love my non-believing family and friends. I've been encouraged to know that it is God's word alone that saves, and through that I can confidently approach evangelism with boldness and deep confidence in the Lord who changes Praise the Lord for the local church. Isn't that encouraging? She's able to say that because she sees what's going on here amongst this body. Here's another one by Anthony Chu. He says, in this community, so again, he's thinking about what he sees here. I see what it means to be part of the body of Christ for church members to celebrate with each other in their joys and also mourn with each other in their losses. Now, the only way that he's able to say that, again, is because he observes it. He experiences it. I experience depth of discipleship and accountability. After coming to the church, I see the importance of having someone experience, uh, someone with experience and wisdom speak into my life. I've been encouraged by the godly character of those who step up to serve the younger folks as they share their experience and knowledge gleaned from, the dec- from decades of walking with Christ. <laughs> Praise God for His sovereign grace. These things don't happen because we are so great. And we figured out the way to make this work. This is God himself unfolding and upholding his plan of salvation, even in Hacienda Heights. And there's more, right? So I know that you, after walking through uh, how people change our Sunday school class on uh, basically biblical counseling, right? I know that many of you guys are walking through that again and again and again, how to grow in the gospel. I know that many of you guys are wanting to evangelize others and are taking huge steps to go to doing that. I know that many of you guys are thinking about how to be a faithful witness uh, for Christ in the workplace, even though in the past you haven't been. Praise God. I know that many of you guys are wanting to love and care for the downtrodden. So a number of uh, a handful of you guys went to this this ministry that teaches that involves that gets churches involved with caring for refugees. 
Praise God for these things. I know many of you guys are wanting to reach out to the community. For example, by offering sewing classes at the church. All those things are evidences of God's grace. Things that we really ought to be thankful for. And we should see these things and have our hearts and our eyes just shoot back to God in giving praise and thanks for what God alone can do and is able to do through the power of his gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we have much to be thankful for. Indeed, we have much to be thankful for in the very gifts that you give us, our food, our sustenance, our very lives, our homes, apartments, our families, our guardians. But most importantly, Lord, as is evident so clearly here in Colossians chapter 1, we ought to be thankful for you. So, Lord, we thank God for the work that you are doing in our lives and around the world on account of your great and powerful gospel. We recognize that it is your grace that is working amongst us and the world, conforming us more to the image of your Son. We know that it is your grace that is growing this gospel fruit, helping us know a little bit more about what the love that you have for your very own Son is like. Helping us know what it's like for us to give ourselves to others. Helping us know what it's like to be bold in our stand for Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ there is, without doubt, new life. So we pray, Lord, we ask you now, we we plead with you that you would enliven us all the more. So that Christ would be magnificent and seen to be magnificent in our lives, in our life as a church. And that you would get all of the glory as you continue to uphold and unfold your sovereign plan to save sinners. Make us a grateful people, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a humility that is marked, um, well, the same humility that Christ had. Lord, we pray that we would be marked by that same humility as we recognize that it is by your grace alone that saves. In your name we pray. Amen.